Amen. That was wonderful indeed. There is something about good godly music that just stirs your soul. Thank you for those that participated, including you in the congregation. It was encouraging to hear not just from those who were singing a special, but from you as well. Well, take your Bibles this morning and turn with me to Acts chapter number 13. I hope you will be able to be back out this evening for our commissioning service. I'm preaching this morning because I'm not sure with 99 years of a combined pastoral experience who the third preacher is going to be to make it through. Oh, it's you, Matt. Not Mark. I had sent an email out within the last couple weeks thinking I sent it to Matt and said, hey, would you mind preaching on Sunday night, not Sunday morning? And Matt never replied. And I thought, man, I've offended him. I have deeply, deeply offended him. And Mark came up to me at the, at the council yesterday, at the ordination council, and said, hey, hey, listen, uh, I appreciate you want me to preach. And I was horrified for a second. I thought, I love hearing you preach, brother. You've been here before. I, I don't remember emailing you. And I realized M.A. Herbster can be Matt or Mark. So, Mrs. Herbster, this might be the first time one of your twins got confused with Matt. In all of their life, but I did that. So, Mark, thank you for being gracious. He said, not to worry, I'll be glad to be the fourth one tonight. <laughs> I'm kidding. So, we will look forward to that this evening. It will be a joy. The reason I asked Matt to switch with me uh, is not just because it's pastor's prerogative, though that does rule the day at some point, right? But because there was a burden on my heart that I needed to preach to the church family properly and explain to you the answer to this question. What is a pastor? We live in a world where people ask, what is a woman? So I thought it might make sense that I should say what a pastor is if we can't even define what a woman is anymore. By the way, if you come on Mother's Day, I'm going to preach a message. What is a woman? If you come on Father's Day, I'm going to preach what is a man. If you come on the 4th of July or July 2nd, I'm going to preach what is a nation. Uh, Are they important? If you come on Grandparents' Day, we'll preach what is a grandparent. And by the way, that'll be the greatest of all messages because it's just the greatest position I've ever heard of. And someday I look forward to being one. But today we're going to look at what is a pastor. So look, for just a second, if you came with a tie, you can loosen your tie. I'm not preaching at you this morning. I'm preaching to you, but guess who I'm preaching at? Me. Have you ever been in a church service where the pastor preached it himself? I mean, knowingly? (laughs) He might have been preaching on a topic and unwittingly been preaching against himself or to himself. This morning I want us to read a passage of scripture here in Acts chapter number 13. It's the first mention of someone being commissioned and sent out from the church in the role of a pastor, missionary, evangelist. And it's important for us. 
First mentions in the Bible are very important. Oh, there were churches sent out. Of course, Christ sent them out to preach and to teach the gospel. But this is the first time we find without the chief shepherd, without the head of the church present, the church actually makes a decision and takes two men and sends them out. And so as we get to the point of talking about what a pastor is, it would be good for us to come here and kind of find out some proof text, if you will. Let's read down to verse number 12, and then we'll jump right into the preaching this morning. The Bible says, Now there were in the church that was in Antioch certain prophets and teachers, as Barnabas and Simeon, that was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene and Manaen, which had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Ghost said, Separate me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work whereunto I have called them. And when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. So they, being sent forth by the Holy Ghost, departed from Seleucia and from thence sailed to Cyprus. And when they were at Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had also John to their minister. And when they had gone through the isle unto Paphos, they found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew whose name was Bar-Jesus. That means essentially alongside of or coming alongside of Jesus. He was claiming to be a prophet of Jesus, and he wasn't one at all. Which was, the deputy, or which was with, I should say, verse 7, the deputy of the country, Sergius Paulus, a prudent man, who called for Barnabas and Saul and desired, notice, to hear the word of God. That's what a church always does. It preaches the word of God. But Elymas, the sorcerer, sorcerer for so his name is, by interpretation, withstood them seeking to turn away the deputy from the faith. By the way, false prophets will always do that. Then Saul, who is called Paul, filled with the Holy Ghost, set his eyes on him and said, O full of all subtlety and all mischief, thou child of the devil, thou enemy of all righteousness, wilt thou not cease to pervert the right ways of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon thee, And thou shalt be blind, not seeing the sun for a season. And immediately there fell on him a mist and a darkness, and he went about seeking some to lead him by the hand. Then the deputy, when he saw what was done, believed, being astonished, notice, at the doctrine of the Lord. Father, help us, I pray this morning, as we come to these truths. Father, I pray that those gathered here would do deep reflection as to why they are members of the church they are members of. May those who are at Bluegrass do deep reflection as well. There are many false prophets that fill many pulpits in this country. But to hold the title of pastor, to fulfill that noble and honorable position, is a high and holy calling. It is not a light thing that we do as a church. And I pray that we would see both the seriousness of it, but also the significance of having a God-ordained pastor leading God's flock. Bless us, I pray this morning, as we look into the Word, in Jesus' name. Amen. This day is a special day for us in our history as a church. I think next to this, the next most important day that we will have is the day that we plant a church out of our midst and say that we have become a self-propagating, propagating, replicating church as the Bible instructs us to become. 
The reality of commissioning a man to the gospel ministry should become really the norm in a healthy church. It should become active and a procedure that is often repeated and duplicated year after year. That brings me then to the sermon this morning. In central Kentucky, pastors seem to fall from every tree. They're as countless as thoroughbreds and often just as pernicious as them. So what is a pastor? Zach, you probably should have listened to this before you became a pastor, before you sought or desired that office. I want to show you a website that I found. This is the front page of it, if you see it. Instant Online Ordination. Now, all the church families are gathered and all the pastors are smiling, but kind of wincing that are here today. By the way, if you're a pastor in here this morning or have been a pastor or ordained to the gospel ministry, raise your hand real high just for our benefit. Real high. That's not real high, man. You wouldn't take that. Good. All right. Thank you. Can you imagine that? Get legally ordained to perform weddings. Well, here's what the bottom of the website says, if you'll show that one. This is what their testimonials are. The fellow on the left says, When my cousin explained how simple the process was for getting ordained, I admit I was a little skeptical. (laughs) Yeah, I would be too. As it turned out, becoming a minister opened tons of doors for me. I'm so glad I joined. The gentleman in the middle says this, When I mentioned my interest in starting a ministry, one of my friends recommended getting ordained online. Thanks to the ULC's helpful materials and products, my ministry and business was off the ground and running. I'm sure it was. The lady on the right is the one that really gets me. When my little brother asked me to officiate his wedding, I was ecstatic. Getting ordained proved even easier than I thought. The ceremony was beautiful. This for-profit business made it glorious. Whatever she says, made it possible. This is absurd, my friends. It's appalling to think that such sites exist. Not just because I'm self-protective as an actual ordained minister, but I understand the grueling task to become a pastor and then to maintain or sustain as a pastor. They treat lightly the office. They treat it as a business. It is in part because of these said websites and activities that people do not hold ordained men in high regard. Coupled to this lunacy is the absurdity of the integrity and purity that seems to be lacking in those who hold the office of the pastor as well. It leaves little doubt with things like this as to why the Western world no longer holds the office of the pastor in high esteem. Look at this 2022 Gallup poll. Now, it may be hard for you to read. It's hard for me to read, to be truthful. But effectively, the the poll, it says 
The deep green is those who are, is, have very high integrity, or what the poll says, these positions, these occupations have high integrity. The light green, they're high. The peach is average, and then it goes down to low and very low. So nurses, medical doctors, pharmacists, high school teachers, and police officers rank higher in integrity and matters of honesty than do the clergy, according to the Gallup. Members of the clergy were first measured by Gallup in this poll in 1977 and were frequently among the top-rated professions. 67% has been the average until 2002. And in Gallup's findings, amid the sexual abuse scandal in the Roman Catholic Church, while the clergy's high and very high ethics ratings recovered to some degree in subsequent years, they have progressively fallen year after year beginning in 2009 to the point where they read at 34% of Americans polled believe that pastors, those Those that are in the clergy have high integrity, 34%. That's the lowest ever in the United States of America. One third of Americans trust the office of the pastor. Good grief. That stat tells me there's a crisis of leadership in our churches. And without godly men saying, I will do something about it, it will continue to get worse and worse. It's not going to get better. And so what we come to on a day like today is not the accolades and attaboys that we're giving to Zachary, but rather noting that there is another man in our midst that says, I will stand up and do something against it. The office of the pastor is to be held in high regard. So the question must be answered then this morning, what is a pastor? By the way, as a pastor myself and of this church, in answering this question and more importantly, in corporately holding a biblical position, we as a body will ensure that far beyond this present generation seated in this room, in this building today, will have men who hold this office and stand in this pulpit who will do so to the glory of God. In other words, if we know what a pastor is, we know when the right one comes along after the one that holds the position now. Our reading in Acts chapter 13, in fact, is the perfect one for us to understand generational pastoring. The church at Antioch is not the first church, if you will. Jerusalem was the first church. That was where Christ founded the church in Matthew chapter 16 and in verse 18. And it was there that the Spirit empowered them in Acts chapter 2. And they were the ones that were to carry the gospel message out and plant churches everywhere they go. In fact, the Bible tells us this. In Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, Jesus commissions the newly formed church. And he says, but ye shall receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in Judea and in all Samaria and and unto the uttermost part of the earth. From that passage until you get to the end of Acts chapter 9, we don't really find the Jerusalem church going anywhere but Jerusalem. So the pastors that were there, the pastors that were in place who were also apostles, they kind of ran the affairs of it. In Antioch, we get to see the first time a church plant begins to church plant. By the way, 
I'm glad one of the preachers tonight is going to be my pastor because he was a church planter and I got saved and was called to preach in his church and planted this church and someday there's going to be a guy that has gotten saved and gets a call to preach and goes from here to start his church. That's what God's design is. And as a church, if we don't know what a pastor is and what their purpose is, then we're going to have a hard time planting anything. From Acts chapter 2 to chapter 8, the one church at Jerusalem grows but doesn't spread. Oh, they do wonderful things and they certainly are growing in the Spirit of God. But God brings persecution to them and the church is forced to go out and do what Jesus told her to do. It's always a wonderful joke to me in the divine comedy of God's mind that he used Saul, the persecutor, to spread the church. And then after his conversion, he used Saul, the preacher, to spread the church and the gospel message everywhere he went. The first time you read of a plural churches used in the Bible is Acts chapter 9 and verse 31. The Bible says there, Then had the churches rest, plural, throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria, and were edified, and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Ghost were multiplied. I take that last statement to mean that in their membership, in their growth, they were multiplied, but also the churches themselves kept multiplying and making more. You go to Acts chapter 11 and verse number 19, and you find the coming to Antioch. The Bible says there, now now they which were scattered abroad upon the persecution that arose about Stephen traveled as far as Phoenice and Cyprus and here it is, Antioch, preaching the word to none but unto the Jews only. And some of them were men of Cyprus and Cyrene, which when they were come to Antioch, spake unto the Grecians, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned unto the Lord. The church at Jerusalem heard of this in chapter 11 and sent Barnabas, that son of consolation, to go and verify the solidity or the validity of this church plant. Barnabas arrives in chapter 11, confirms that they are, and he decides that he needs a helper. And in verse 25, the Bible says he goes to get Saul from Tarsus. Here's what we continue reading in verse 26. And when he found him, the him here is Saul in Tarsus, he brought him unto Antioch. And it came to pass that a whole year they assembled themselves with the church and taught much people. That's what the church is supposed to do. And the disciples were called Christians first in, not Jerusalem, in Antioch. What church represented little Christ running around and doing the work that Jesus called them to do? It was this church that we read of here in Antioch. It doesn't make them better than the church at Jerusalem. The church in Jerusalem was under significant persecution. It means they're a good model for us to go as a church that wasn't founded by Jesus Christ in person to learn from. And so when we come to this church at Antioch, they teach us much. It is within this church that the Bible begins to define what a pastor is using three criteria that that will continue through the whole of the New Testament and in the epistles. First, we find that the pastor is defined by his person. Verse 
This is the first time the church as a body commissions anyone of their own to go out and fulfill the responsibility of preaching and teaching and planting churches. In Acts chapter 6, they had certainly recognized deacons, prayed and laid hands on them. The Bible tells us that. But this is the first time that the church is actively doing this and sending out a preacher. These men are defined then by their personal character and their personal conduct. Letter A, what we find in verse number 1, is that they are truth-telling teachers. You say, well, where do you get that from, pastor? It's in verse number one. Now, there were in the church that was at Antioch certain prophets and teachers. Look, the office of prophet in the New Testament church particularly just means one who is telling forth the truth. It doesn't mean until the sign gifts that they couldn't tell things that were going to be. But once the sign gifts ended, the role of the prophet becomes the role of the forth teller, the truth teller, the proclaimer or herald of God's gospel, God's truth. And so what they tell us here is in Acts chapter 13, these were truth tellers who were also teachers. These men, of whom were Saul and Barnabas, were prophets and teachers. The word prophet simply means one who tells forth the truth, one who tells the truth, who delivers a statement, and in this instance, from God. They were truth-telling teachers then. There is nothing worse than someone who calls themselves a pastor who doesn't tell the truth. There's nothing more abominable to God. The world, my friend, is filled with false prophets. Paul, John, James, Peter, all warn of false teachers. Why? Because they've been around since God himself created man. Once Adam sinned in the garden and the fall came, man has always believed the lie of religion. The worst thing I can hear from someone in our church today as a pastor is the following statement. Pastor, I heard a preacher on the radio say, and then they go on to say something opposite than what I've taught. Again, I'm not preaching at you, I'm preaching at me. But I'm just telling you as I preach at me. It is one of the more difficult things here. I heard a podcast. Pastor, I know what you said, but this podcaster said this. I just don't know which one to believe. I understand why the rating is at 34% for pastors then. Because you would rather believe someone living and working for profit on the radio and on podcast, and not believe the one that God has called or ordained and placed into your life who is here to tell you the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. In his person, a pastor must be a truth teller. Listen, the reason there are so many pastors, air quotes, (laughs) is because these false teachers want to heap to themselves hearers, the Bible says, Paul says, with itching ears. They just want somebody that will tell them what they like to hear. The man who is called a pastor in his person must be committed to telling the truth. Here's a great passage from Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 14, verses 13, 14, and 15. Jeremiah starts by saying, Then said I, Ah, Lord God, Behold, the prophets say unto them, Ye shall not see the sword, neither shall ye have famine, but I will give you assured peace in this place. That was the lie. And Jeremiah, the true prophet, is saying, that is not how it's going to be. But the false prophets had many people that were listening to them. In fact, so much so, Jeremiah was relegated to the sides of society and ultimately cast into a miry pit. 
Notice the next verse. Then the Lord said unto me, the prophets prophesy lies in my name. I sent them not out. Neither have I commanded them. Neither spake unto them. They prophesy unto you a false vision and divination. A thing of not or something out of nothing. They're making it up. Does that sound like today's false teachers? And if it's not making up something out of nothing, it's from the deceit of their heart, he says. Therefore, thus saith the Lord concerning the prophets that prophesy in my name, and I sent them not. Yet they say, sword and famine shall not be in this land. By sword and famine shall those prophets be consumed. You know what God says to the false prophets? You're going to be eaten up in your own lie. Your own lie will be your downfall. May I say to any and to all, if you have ever associated or attached yourself to a church, a religion, or to a pastor or a bishop that is telling you lies purposefully, detach today. Run. Find yourself a church where there is a truth-telling teacher in that pulpit. We see from Acts chapter 13 and verse 1 that God chooses men for His ministry who are able to discern and speak His truth, not theirs. They must be diligent masters of the book. My pastor, when I was commissioned and in my commissioning service, said to me something that was told to him years before. He said, Kyle, master the book. I have tried, lo, these 15 years. I have not perfected my mastery of the book, but it is my pursuit that I would be able to Sunday after Sunday, Wednesday after Wednesday, service after service, counseling after counseling, discipleship after discipleship, teaching after teaching, that when I stand up and say, thus saith the Lord, that the Lord thus said it. You want a pastor in his person that will tell you the truth. Secondly, they're a truth-living testament. Each of the men listed in chapter 13 and verse 1 were already living the testimony of a pastor. In other words, truthfully, any of them could have been called. They were already serving in that leadership, but it is Saul and Barnabas, because of God's choosing, that are called out. I have called them, it says at the end of verse 2. Each of the men, however, were ably performing in their person what God expected. We find their testimony is recognized by man when Saul and Barnabas were called out. That's the key, by the way. Each man in a church body should be pursuing the character that is required of a pastor. The healthiest churches are filled up with men, young and old, who are pursuing in their character, in their conduct, the life of a pastor. You may never be one. It may never be God's calling in your life, but you should live to that standard. That's what success looks like. The process of praying and laying on of hands is what we will do this evening for Zach, and they did that for these men. But it is the fact that the life is a testament of God's call upon him. Paul clearly articulates to Timothy and to Titus the testimony of character and conduct required for one to be a pastor. Here's what he says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 3 and verses 1 through 7. This is a true saying. If a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. A bishop then must be, here's the list, blameless, the husband of one wife. Oh, sorry, Joyce. Joyce. 
Sorry, Beth. That gets me in a lot more trouble. The Joyce Meyer, when I think people can kind of say, now, yeah, it may be a prosperity gospel. But boy, when I bring up Beth Moore, I get chastised. I get run out on a rail. You see, that's why I preach the first point. I'm supposed to be a truth teller. I'm not here seeking to please you. I'm here seeking to please God. We'll deal with that in the final point this morning. I love you, just in case you forgot that this morning. But I have to tell you the truth. A bishop must be blameless, the husband of one wife. By the way, that even exempts the pernicious, wicked, abominable decisions today that homosexuals can be pastors. Vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach, not given to wine, no striker, not greedy of filthy lucre, but patient, not a brawler, not covetous, one that ruleth well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. That seems kind of unfair, doesn't it, to the pastor's kids? Not to me. Did it to you, pastor? Did it to you, Pastor Herbster? Is it to you, Matt? I'm sure the kids might have thought so. But to the pastor, if we understand in our person what we've been called to, we understand what God's called us to. We understand what it means. Well, why is that important? He goes on and tells us, for if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? Listen, if you're in a church where the testimony of the man that's leading that church is a living disaster, leave! Now! And quickly. Not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride he fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must, be a, must have a good report of them which are without, lest he fall into reproach and a snare of the devil. To Titus, Paul wrote this in Titus 1, verses 5 through 9. For this cause left I thee in Crete, that thou shouldest set in order the things that are wanting, and ordain elders in every city, as I had appointed thee. If any be blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of riot or unruly, for a bishop, here Paul links together what an elder and a bishop are, they're linked in this passage, must be blameless as a steward of God, not self-willed, not soon angry, not given to wine, no striker, not given to filthy lucre, but a lover of hospitality, a lover of good men, sober, just, holy, temperate, holding fast the faithful word as he had been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers. The exhortation is to the household of faith. The convincing is to those who are outside of the household of faith. In other words, you have to be able to defend yourself within the church and without the church. You have to present Christ. Combining these two lists, we find that for a man to be a pastor, his character must testify, I say in your notes you have as well, that he is blameless, faithful, humble, hospitable, temperate, kind, mature, holy, honest. And all of these at the same time. Simple enough, right? I mean, anybody can do that. Try it for a week. And we'll find out how holy our church can actually become. See, the problem is we say, well, that's what his job is. No, no, the character and conduct of these leaders in the church is that they were able to be called as a pastor. They were able to function in that role. This is God's calling, men. We define a pastor by his person. And then, secondly, we define him by his purpose. In verses 2 through 7... As we read through this, we found that Saul and Barnabas went out doing what they were doing in Antioch, in verse 2. 
In Antioch, they ministered and preached, the Bible says. The word minister is where we get the word liturgy. They were actually, in the Greek, meaning here to performing religious or charitable functions of worship corporately, obedience personally, and relief generally. We find their purpose was to spiritually feed those who were starving the truth of God. In verse number 5, it says, they preached the word. In verse number 7, Sergius Paulus, a prudent man, called for Barnabas and Saul and desired to hear the word of God. The pastor of a church must be able to deliver the truth of God. If you were to fast forward to the end of Paul's missionary endeavors, we find Paul calls together the elders or pastors of the church at Ephesus in Acts chapter 20. In that passage, Paul is exhorting the elders to be faithful men, faithful pastors. He then defines for them their twofold purpose in pastoring. In Acts 20 and verse 28, he says, Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God which he hath purchased with his own blood. Ironically, as Paul, and I say that tongue-in-cheek as a pastor, there's no irony with God, as Paul is giving these words to the Ephesians, Peter in AD 60, the very same year, 1,800 kilometers away in Babylon, writes these words in 1 Peter 5 and verse 1, The elders which are among you I exhort, who am also an elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed, feed the flock of God which is among you taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for a filthy lucre, but of a ready mind, neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being in samples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd shall appear, you shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. How amazing is God's inspiration and how clear is his intention in describing the pastoral ministry. Paul gives the role, Peter gives the activity. Here's the twofold purpose. Letter A, feeding the flock. My job is not to start a soup kitchen, an orphanage, or even a Christian school. My only job as a pastor is to feed you. That's it. Now, all of those other things can become ministries of our local church, and they're fine, and every church has its own DNA in Christ. But my job as a pastor is not to do that. I often am told by people, Pastor, what do you do out in the community? And I say to them, my job as a pastor is to feed this flock. That's what I do in the community. See, you don't go out and do anything else. No, I do lots of other things. But this is my job. This is my calling. My job is to feed this flock that comes Sunday after Sunday, service after service, in times of counseling, in times of corporate worship. It is my job to feed you. And if you find yourself ever a part of a church where the pastor is more gone than he is present, leave that church. Because he's no longer feeding that flock. He wants to be an evangelist. And there's nothing wrong with that. But the pastor needs to be at home. He needs to be here. I can tell you, I made a rule when I started Bluegrass. I would never be gone more than two Sundays in a year. And I generally will not make them two consecutive Sundays. You say, well, you're 15 years in. How are you doing? I've only missed three services one time in 15 years. And one of them was for a birth of a child. (laughs) Not mine. I didn't have it. Jessica did. (laughs) My part was easy. A pastor must rightly divide the word of truth. He must regularly and readily break for you the bread of life. He is to preach, teach, and exhort, as Paul says, with all long suffering. Do you look at your pastor as one who feeds you? 
And before you get too self-righteous and say, well, I'm supposed to feed myself. Yes, you are. You're to be walking and living in the Spirit, filled with the Spirit. And He, according to 1 Corinthians 2, is the one that illuminates you and helps you to understand the Word of God. But it is the pastor in the corporate worship when you come together that is to find green pastures for you to feed in. To challenge you and to motivate you, to push you beyond the lazy, lackadaisical approach that our flesh wants to stay in. I have the responsibility to bring forth the nourishing elements of God's word. You have the responsibility to consume it. When you sit in a worship service or in counseling or in discipleship with a pastor, you are to be open to the feeding, not lock-jawed spiritually. Some, good, some Christians, I should say, have good pastors who are trying to feed them, but a pastor can only force feed you for so long. I cannot get down to the sheep's mouth and keep it chewing and then push it down so that they might digest it. I can't do that, but I can feed. I can give you, thus saith the Lord, this is what's best. This is what the I can give you, all of those things. And you should always seek a pastor that does that. Letter B, I put fathering the flock. Now, lest too many of our deep theological thinkers get me... Over a barrel, I realize God is our Father. But when we see the word overseeing or oversight, it has the idea of attending to. The word pastor is from the late 1300s in its etymology, and it means to tend to the flock, pastor or have in the pasture. And that's what a bishop, an overseer, is. The word overseer is used by Paul in Acts 20 and verse 28. It speaks of a man charged with the duty of seeing that things be done by others and those things that are done be done right. There's a reason why sometimes around here you will hear me say, if we're going to do something, we're going to wait and make sure we can do it in a way that is excellent. Why? Because we are representing the God of heaven. I mean, we just roll it out there and hope. And, and I know that most of you know my personality. Most of you know me very intimately. We're a very close church family as we grow. I love that aspect. I do have a little bit of the gunslinger mentality to me. But when it comes to church, you can ask anybody on this staff, that's not how we run this church. We never will. Because in the sense of oversight, I have been charged with making sure each member of this place has the fullest health and opportunity to grow. The word oversight used in 1 Peter chapter 5 is a compound Greek word meaning to critically look upon with intense observation. In other words, it's not just a figurehead role, this overseeing oversight of a pastor. It is a pastor's purpose to peer into your life, to point out the good and the bad, and then to provide you with both the encouragement or the correction that is needed. That is the role of a father. We define a pastor by his person, by his purpose, and finally, by his position. In our passage here, beginning in verse number 7, Saul, or who would become Paul, steps from the shadow into the leadership of the missionary endeavor, Barnabas initially being the first name, but now Saul moving into the prominence, exercising his position, God-given position and platform. Bar-Jesus, Elamas, as he's named, the sorcerer, was harming the actual flock that was forming there, and he was hampering another from coming to belief in Jesus Christ. And so Paul, as a shepherd, steps in. By the way, shepherding for the Lord cannot be done in timidity. But neither can it be done tyrannically. 
Peter's admonition in verse 3 of chapter 5 says, Neither as being lords over God's heritage. It is God's redeemed purchase, not Kyle's. This church is not mine. It never will be. And when my time is done, and I hope it's not for a long, long, long time, but when my time is done, there'll be another person that occupies the position of pastor here. And if we understand who that person is, we're going to understand we're not going to put somebody in that says, I'm ready to take charge. Run that person out of this church if they come in trying to take charge of anything. You say, well, pastor, don't you have the responsibility to be in charge? I do have that responsibility. Revelations chapters 2 and 3 make that very clear. When Jesus comes to inspect the seven churches, he always speaks to the angel, the messenger of the church. Make no mistake, there is going to be one person that's responsible for what goes on here. So bringing Zach on as a pastor, he's going to shepherd under my under-shepherding. And that's a good role for him. But as I've noted many, many times when we play sports together, especially golf, there's going to come a time where he can start beating me at golf. And there may be, I'm not saying he's the next pastor, but there may be. Who knows? He, may, he and Sarah may be called to go somewhere else. And there may be yet another young man that comes in here and fills this pulpit. But whomever that person is, they cannot be a lord over God's flock. Paul, in addressing Elymas, does not usurp his position, but neither does he shy away from his calling. Your pastor, what you should look for, should be someone that you love and trust because they have been consistent in your life. The position of pastor then is a delicate balance, and Peter explains it as such. You're not a lord, but you're an example or an ensample. This twofold position, or dichotomous, it seems, position of not lording but living consistently gets a lot of pastors in trouble. It starts, letter A, the position is first of one of humility. It's one of humility. Peter tells us that a pastor is not a lord over God's flock. Here's what Paul says to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 2, beginning in verse 1. And I, brethren... When I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Paul said, "Look, I could have come as a rabbi of the rabbis. I could have come as a Hebrew of the Hebrews. I could have come and I could have wowed you with my logic and my wisdom, but I didn't." I came humbly under the auspice of preaching and teaching only Jesus Christ. Because that's the only thing that saves. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching was not with the enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. That your faith, notice, should not stand in the wisdom of men. Can I tell you, if you say, I trust in Kyle, you are trusting in the wrong person. I trust what bluegrass says. You're trusting in the wrong place. You trust what God says. And hopefully, God willing, this church will always preach, believe, and practice what God says. That must be the heart of every pastor. By the way, Paul wrote 1 Corinthians chapter 2 25 years into his Christian life. It takes sometimes a long time to mature and grow up and fully understand who you are. 25 years into his Christian life. 15 years into his pastoral ministry, he writes 1 Corinthians chapter 2. That's an amazing thought. A pastor is not worthy of his position if he is not humble. 
The chief shepherd humbled himself and took upon himself the form of a servant. The under-shepherd, the servant, is no better than his master. Humility is thinking always of God and of others and not thinking of yourself. The old saying goes, humility is not thinking less of yourself, but rather thinking of yourself less. There are many instances in modern Christianity where we can see man-centered worship from churches and congregations. Far too many pastors, even once great New Testament churches, think far too much of themselves. I'm always mindful of that my position given graciously to, uh, to me by God, is one haughty decision away from ruin. It's a truth. May I say this as an aside? Humility does not make the pastor your whipping boy. We don't find that in Paul here. But we do find a humble resolve to doing what was necessary. Listen, it was not convenient for him to take Sergius Paulus' favorite guy... Elymas, the guy that did all the tricks for him, and put him in his place. But it was the necessary thing. And so there was a a little bit of a, (laughs) here we go, I'm sure, in Paul's life. Although, knowing Paul, maybe there wasn't. (laughs) It takes a little bit of humility to do great things for God. It helps us understand what Paul says next in 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 6. He goes on to say, after saying all of this about his weakness and his feebleness and his frailty in their midst, he says this beginning in verse number 6, How be it? We speak wisdom among them that are perfect. In other words, those that are mature and grown up in Christ, I, I do give you wisdom. It's divine wisdom, he's going to tell us, but I do give it to you. Yet not the wisdom of this world or the princes of this world that come to naught, but we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom, which God ordained before the world unto our glory or for our good, which none of the princes of this world knew. For had they known it, they would have not crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, I have not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered in the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. But God hath revealed them to, unto us by his Spirit. For this Spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. For what man knoweth the things of a man, save the spirit of a man which is in him, even so the things of God knoweth no man but the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God. Notice which things also we speak, not in words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. If a pastor is humbly submitted to God, then the word of God can go forth in the Spirit's power. My hope is that Bluegrass would never have a pastor who brazenly brags that they are good communicators or that they're well-crafted speakers. May we always have men who speak not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth. Humility allows a pastor to say what Paul would later say in 2 Corinthians 7, beginning in the middle of verse 3. He says, For I have said before that ye are in the hearts to die and live with you. Great is my boldness of speech toward you. Great is my glorying of you. I am filled with comfort. I am exceeding joyful in all, your tribula- all our tribulations. For when we were coming to Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, but we were troubled on every side. Without were fightings, within were fears. Nevertheless, God, that comforteth those that are cast down, comforted us, how? By the coming of Titus, one of those preacher boys. 
But he goes on and says, and not by his coming only, but by the consolation, the encouragement, the comfort, wherewith he was comforted in you. When he told us your earnest desire, your mourning, your fervent mind toward who? Me. Can I humbly say it is a joy to know so many of you pray for our family? I don't take the position of being your pastor as a haughty thing, and neither will Zach. Pastoring is not being big-headed, but it is being bent on your knees towards God. He finishes by saying, so that I rejoiced the more. I can say that the members of Bluegrass have comforted me through the years, and it is humbling. I know your fervent mind towards me, and I'm so grateful And like Paul, rejoice the more because of it. As we now take on a younger pastor to the staff, I know that you will have the same mind towards him and will continue to encourage and support him in his ministry. The pastor's position is of humility, but finally it's of honor. Ah, you finally got to it. You want to be puffed up. Now listen, there's no man worthy of honor if he's not first humble. God himself says, if you will humble yourselves, I will lift you up. Paul was Sergius Paulus was honored because he in humility withstood the devil's influence and declared God's truth. Peter tells us that pastors are in samples to the flock. The word means a figure formed by a blow or an impression. The word in the Greek that is used for in samples is the word typo. Now it's kind of funny to hear that today, isn't it? In our modern word processing. How many in here grew up learning to type on a typewriter? And what happened if you hit the wrong key or made a typo? Still left the impression. I mean, you could white tape that thing out as much as you wanted, but it still left the impression. That's the word typo. It means it leaves an impression. A typo today is an inaccuracy, but in the koine, it it actually meant an exact representation of the keystroke. As an aside, maybe some pastors are the modern word typo, and others are the original word typo. Paul made this point as the example to the Corinthians when he said this in 1 Corinthians 11, Be ye followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. I'm your example. I'm your typo. The honor for a pastor is the first, is first, I should say, whatever the master typist says. In his preaching, in his teaching, in his counseling from the Bible, they are to have an impact on your life. That is the way in which you honor God and give honor to your pastor. That they don't stand here and preach on deaf ears. How many pastors that I pray for and in my heart I pity, they stand up and they preach and they walk out and realize no one in the congregation that day is going to listen to a word he said. Oh, how tragic. As believers, we are to honor those who rise to a state of reflecting the accurate type of Christ in leading our lives as we lead our homes, men. Those men who achieve that should be afforded a spiritual authority over you, not because they demand it. The moment they demand it, they've lost it. But because in their example, you say, yes, that's a person worthy to listen to, worthy to submit to. Your pastor, or as the staff grows, pastors have been sent by God to express to you the discipline, the discretion, and the direction that your life should be taking according to his word. 
The highest honor that a pastor can receive on this earth is when the church family faithfully trusts him and follows him, as Paul stated. It's hard, by the way, to honor a pastor who's desirous to impress other pastors or spends all of his time away at colleges or particular groups, being absent from the flock that he is charged to lead. Absence, in fact, makes the heart grow fonder, but perhaps for a pastor, it makes it grow fonder for another man or another ministry. The honor that should be afforded is why true humility in the pastor is essential. Without humility, the pastor quickly becomes a lord over the flock. The most gratifying honor, though, for the pastor is that crown of glory. I can tell you it's what I live for. I seek to serve you, but I'm seeking to please him. Because he's the one that's going to give me a crown of glory. None of you are. I love you. I'd give my life for any one of these sheep as the chief shepherd did. But he's the one that will give me a crown of glory. That's the most gratifying honor that a pastor could ever receive. So in closing, this evening, I hope you do come back. These three men will probably preach shorter than I just have. They are humble, yet in my mind, distinctly honorable men who tonight will be charging Zach and our church in the commissioning of a young man to the gospel ministry. So I wanted to preach this message this morning. As you see in the closing note, in our church family today, there are nearly 80 men from ages 12 to 35. Think about that for a minute. Say, well, I'm not. That doesn't mean God still can't call you to pastor, but there's nearly 80 in that age bracket. Those are the prime years that God usually will work in the heart of someone and lead them into the ministry. In our church, that group makes up married and unmarried, middle school, high school, college, and beyond or in their careers. I'm not suggesting this morning that God is going to call all of you to be a pastor. If the church was filled up with pastors, where would the people be? But each of you men this morning is a possible candidate. Old and young. So I ask, as I put in your notes, is your life pastor ready? Most sermons are preached to church members, exhorting them to something. To the people in the pew. Today's message was preached at me. To the men who stand behind this pulpit and declare God's truth. May those who fill the office of pastor always be worthy, not of your calling, but of God's calling. Father, help us as we close our thoughts this morning.